to the new Music Conversation podcast right behind us. I'm your host, Brandon Daniel of the Seattle band BD and the Sheiks. And right behind us is a Music Conversation show, the kind of conversations that musicians frequently have with one another when we're playing a show together or just shooting the shit outside of a show on the curb. Today we're talking to Nils Peterson from the group Hotel Vignette, and he's also a former member of a sub-pop band called Rose Windows. Rose Windows is no longer. All these guys have moved into uh, new passions on in, in passion projects in their life, and this is Nils' one in, in Hotel Vignette. We had a really good conversation. It, it was actually one of the first ten that I did back in September, so there's a little bit of a mic issue. I don't really like the way his mic sounds. I've, I've moved on to other settings, so I'm sorry about that. But Nils was great, and I know I say that about just about every artist that's on this show, but he was legitimately humble, and yet at the same time very interesting and knowledgeable about music, which was a combination uh, that I really enjoyed. So we're going to get into it. We're going to get you a, a, a little tasting of the new Hotel Vignette song. Let me look it up. Importing Happiness, that's the name of the track. It's all, I've already listened to it, it's really cool, so here we go. Before Hotel Vignette though, we gotta tell you about our sponsor for today, Blumenstein Audio. Check out Blumenstein Audio for the ultimate fidelity single driver speakers, subwoofers, and audio accessories for music lovers. Since 2006, Blumenstein Audio has handcrafted their fine line of speakers here in Washington State out of bamboo and birch woods. And with the holidays coming up, you know they have some deals going for their, for the woman or man in your life who is an enormous audiophile. So uh, go check out Blumenstein Audio at B-L-U-M-E-N-S-T-E-I-N audio.com and you can get a 10% discount on checkout just for listening to this show. That's a benefit to you. Go check it out. You won't regret it. They're awesome speakers. Here's Hotel Vignette. What's your last name? Uh, Peterson. We never, ever talk about those kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, like, last names get forgotten a lot, it seems, in, like, everyday yeah. conversations. It's like hard that. enough to remember each other's first names. Yeah, I'm, I'm horrible with names. I'm great with faces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, like, I'm really auditory, so I just learn auditorily. Yeah. And um, so... I would think that I would be better at remembering people's names, but I just blank stare right into their face. And they, they just, I, I remember faces really well. Yeah. It was like, I mean, when you called me, I, I remember, I remember who you were, but that's because I'd seen like your posters around town and I, oh. I, um, I mixed you once at the Rat and Raven. Oh really? Yeah. And I think it was when Schroeder was actually in the band. Oh, like funny. We were talking about it, like, oh, maybe that's actually the first time we ever met. We just don't... It was so long ago. Yeah, you look familiar. I remember when I met you, but... Um, 
But then, yeah, when you opened the door, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Your face just came back. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I met you at the um, Linda's in Seattle for that uh, oh, Linda's Lin Fest. Linda's Fest, yeah. Yeah. Why and we not? were, neither of us were playing it. But no, we Thunder there. Pussy and Taco Cat, like, last year's Linda Fest, right? Thunder Pussy was good. Yeah. I didn't even see uh, Taco Cat. I, I didn't either. I had to go off for band practice. Right, right. But that was a good time. It was stinky. They didn't mm -hmm. remove the um, dumpsters from the... <laughs> yeah, Schroeder and I were just hanging out by all that just that wonderful garbage smell. That's when I was still smoking. That helped. Yeah. To be <laughs> smoking cigarettes. <laughs> the garbage is the only thing that made it tolerable in the hot sun. But hey, I, did they even do a Linda's Fest this summer? Yeah. They uh, did? Holmes Elite played. Oh, that's cool. Um, I don't know who else. It just happened. Did you like, go? No. No. I would go to that thing again. I like that. That was fun. If I I don't think I was living here yet. I think it happened like the day before I moved in or something. You've been in Seattle a while. Are you native? Um, not born. Um, but I've been in this area since '92. Mm. Uh, my dad was military, um, Air Force. So in '92 nice. we moved to Tacoma, and I was in Tacoma till 2000. Sure. And then I spent two years up here, and then I moved away. Went to the Midwest for like six years. What part? Um, Iowa for a short stint at a liberal arts college, mm -hmm. and then four years in Madison. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And then, yeah, and then 2007 moved back. That gives you a good feel for a place, spending four years there. Yeah, I have a theory about moving places that it's basically... Treating any city like a college education yeah, takes about four years. Yeah. And after four years, you have the choice of there's either stuff going on really well for you in the city, and so you stay to do your master's. Yeah. Or you move on. Yeah. If there's like really no point. That's interesting. I have a theory that I just uh, came up with when I was touring um, extensively for the first time, and it was... You know, you go, and you you have a lot of experience in this. You go through so many um, places that seem barren, that seem ugly, yeah. that seem like, why would anybody live here? And the thing that I found was the uh, resounding answer every time is people live where they live for two reasons. Number one is family, yep. and number two is work. Yeah. And that's just it. Yeah. And I feel bad when you pull into a small town and the kids um, that come to your show are, like, apologetic about their town. Like, the first thing they do is, like, can't wait to see you guys, or you guys are so great. But then the next thing out of their mouth is, like, oh, I'm sorry about this stupid town I live in. Yeah, but if you think about it, that's, like, that's just the grass is always green mentality as well. Totally. Like, I mean, everybody hates Seattle who lives here. <laughs> you know, like everyone hates LA that lives there. And like yeah. Everyone complains about New York who lives there. Mm. But they're not going to move. It's just, mm. they, it's, it's just like part of the culture that that's one of the things they do is complain about what's mm. going on. Mm -hmm. And some of it is like, you know, uh, a want for a better environment, like yeah. better things happen around you. And some of it's just discomfort and disdain for being... Um, uh, like motionless. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Uh, we have a lot of interesting reasons to leave Seattle popping up right now that are, are new. Yeah. And it's it's wild. And I wonder what it's doing to um, our artistic scene. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the 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 growth that's happening right now is is pretty touchy with a lot of people. It seems, you know, it's I I get it that you know things are changing really fast, and it sucks that part of that change means higher prices, right, and everything. But it's like Seattle has always been this battle with itself of wanting to mm-hmm. play with the big leagues. Mm-hmm. And also wanting to maintain this small town mentality. And it's like, you can't have both, you know? It's like, we're constantly going through growing pains. And yeah, I mean, you look at like the loud voices, at least in like the scenes, that circles that we're working in. Mm-hmm. And the things that they're really been out of shape about losing the culture they talk about is like 15, 20 years max old. It's really not that old of things. Mm. You know, it's just, it's, that's how Seattle has always operated. It's constantly changing over and for better or for worse, that's what makes it unique and brings about the style and culture that it does have. That's true. You know, things are constantly happening that are new and like inventive and very progressive. And the downside of that is you're constantly losing things and nothing is really like staying for that long. Yeah. I mean, Boeing, Amazon, um, Starbucks. I mean, these are huge Microsoft. These are huge companies yeah. that, that make up. One benefit is, um, like, last night we played Numos, and um, that's just why my voice sucks right now. <laughs> um, and the I'd say half the audience were engineers and techies. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. They, they, like seeing, they like seeing entertainment. They like seeing art. They like seeing shows. And so, and they're, they've got the disposable income to yeah. show up. And that, in turn, is not a bad thing for us entertainers. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you don't get it both ways. You right. Know? Like, either we grow and as people in the entertainment business or just people in the culture business of any sort of thing, we see that growth. Mm-hmm. in that there are more potential customers and audience members. Right. But the flip side of that is it causes prices to go up all around. And, like, you know, there's there's definitely very um, crucial problems to our infrastructure, like not just in Seattle, but, like, as a country. And those need to be addressed, you know, things like the higher minimum wage, like just a standard of living that people mm. can actually like live on. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to, to see that grow. And I think that if like those kind of problems don't get addressed, it doesn't really matter where you live. Mm. Like it's just going to be bad news. You were in, um, a pretty big band, Rose windows. Um, and, but you, not just big popularity wise, because that was true too. But <laughs> there was so a lot of people in the band, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm wondering, like, how that affected you financially. Um, that's a that's a tough split. What was it? Twelve people? No, it was. I mean, I think we had at the peak, like we there was some shows where there were eleven people on stage. Okay. 
But it it mostly kind of uh, for the first three years it was kind of between like seven and eight people. Wow. And then big. the last year it was six. Mm-hmm. So that was our streamlined version. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> was that be, <laughs> was that in in part had to do with profit? Or no, I mean no, I mean that we never made any money. Like we right. never got a paycheck. It was just about doing it. Just yeah, totally. Just <clears throat> we wanted to play music, and we got opportunity after opportunity. And we just kept saying yes, and it was great. Like it's uh, the the learning curve was very steep in that that whole process. How so? I just get thrown into like just new things and like constantly using other life skills to be like, how, how do you navigate this? How do you, mm. how do you go from playing this level of show to this level of show mm. and try to do it right and do it to where people want you to come back and things like that. How do you manage loving people on stage? <laughs> <laughs> that is just the art of not playing. <laughs> that's, that's a big thing musically that I learned throughout that whole experience was how to just not play. How so? Um, it's just the negative space of, of a song, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, you can have that many people, but if you have that many people that are just constantly just like mm-hmm. going at it, going at it, and just like strumming away like full chords on every instrument, it doesn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. You have to get into like partial chord theory and like, and rests. Yeah. And just space and like, or, you know, like, you might have this wonderful melody line that that encapsulates a 16 measure phrase. Well, now all of a sudden we're going to split it in two mm. and give half to this instrument and half to this instrument. We're going to split it in three and then just like it'll like move throughout the band mm-hmm. instead of it just coming from this one source and that keeps the ears like moving around. Which is is actually wonderful to know um in your own work aside from that project because I mean silence is key yeah I mean it, it is a it is the unspoken key and it's it's super important and not enough rock bands especially get um, to be familiar with that yeah I mean I get it like you know you start playing and like you get really excited and you just like you want to have it just be all and it's just like well it can't always be all like you need dynamics you need you need the ebb and flow. Yeah. It's like, like just in life, you know, like you, you can't have an amazing, wonderful thing happening to you constantly. Mm. Like you will become numb to that feeling of greatness and that feeling of like being happy and that joyous. Mm. Like you have to feel the pain that comes on the flip side of that in order to really appreciate and truly experience that. So, apply that to music and then you got then you got movement then you got journeys yeah we tried this thing last night where we inverted the set with like a chill song yeah and it was just poorly timed and it didn't work out I'm I'm familiar with how to do it yeah and effectively but last night was kind of like a, a last minute like nostalgia thing where drummer was like let's play this 10 year old song that was you know that I did before he even joined the group, and mm-hmm. and, um, and we all liked the song enough that we're like, yeah, that's cool, 
it just didn't have the effect on the crowd that you know it's supposed to. And so I was like, at the end of it, I was just very happy to jump back into the busy, you know, yeah. pickup song. Um, yeah, that's tough. Like, you know, it's, I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to read what, what the crowd's going to like versus like what I like. You know? Yeah. Well, I imagine in a group like that, um, I, I want to get to your, your new project hotel vignette, but I, I can imagine in a group like that, uh, with Rose Windows that you, you probably play to a set list. Um, yeah, you know, when we were, when we were on tour, um, there's definitely like kind of a set order. Mm. We'd, we'd put it together, work on the ins and outs of every song and have a flow. And it was like, it was always a conceptually put together as like, there's a starting point, there's an ending point. Mm -hmm. And they both end like kind of around the same level. You know, and then in between it's like up and down, like mm -hmm. throughout the whole like process of it. And so we ended up like a lot of like when we were just doing show after show, it was like, all right, we're doing this set. And we'd we'd vary every once in a while, depending. Like sometimes it was a length thing, sometimes it was just it just seemed like the right time to change it up. Right. But then we also would just do impromptu shows, like trying to like kind of recapture some of that early glory days of like playing in basements and rawness, yeah, and like DIY kind of things where we're just like, "Those show up, right. we're gonna, all, we're all gonna play on other people's equipment and instruments and just have fun." <laughs> yeah, that's its own. Those were great because like it yeah. was just it was just raw energy. You know? Totally, it's like it's really cool to feel that. I mean, I I love that and. I love playing at places like the Paramount in front of 3,000 people. Sure. That's really cool, too. Yeah, that's really cool. They're both, like, completely different highs. Hmm. Um, with this new project, Hotel Vignette, uh, what was your idea for the direction? Well, it's, it's funny because this actually isn't a new project. I've been playing under the name Hotel Vignette for about four years now. Oh, wow. I just would only do one or two shows a year because I was so busy with yeah. Rose Windows. And I never really put in any kind of, like, huge push for people to know about it. It's just, like, I'd get offered something that fit into my schedule. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Sometimes I'd show up as a my own person, like, just doing a solo thing on guitar. Um... One of the first times I played with people, it was, uh, I was on piano, I had an upright bass player, and then Veronica, the flute player from Rose Windows, sat in as well. And that kind of, like, started me thinking about how this whole thing can, like, move and just, like, have a fluidity that's not so constrained to one genre mm -hmm. or one specific style. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, the idea behind, behind Hotel Vignette, and when I first started, like, using that name, was, uh, um, it was telling stories, but not necessarily telling stories that were, like, a beginning and an end, but, like, snapshots mm. of what's going on in these people's lives. And so the song will, um tell a bit 
of like give you an idea of what's going on. But then I also write like like a short story about it, like a vignette that tells another part of it. And then I, like the idea is to work with visual artists who do a painting that also tells them of it. And like between the three of them, you get kind of this idea about what's happening in this story. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of you uh, you can theorize about where they came from and you can postulate to where they're going. But it's still you're just you're getting like themes and moods and like character ideas and maybe like a little bit of action. But that's about it. That's really beautiful. So that was the beginning. And I mean I still I'm I still hold to that, but right now I'm like I you know, I'm I'm back at like a a starting point. I'm like, okay, I want to build this up. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily I'm, I'm not looking to build it up to where it's gonna be sustainable and go on forever. Like I like to think of the musical projects I'm in that they have an ending. You know, there's a time and a place for it. Hmm. I have a concept and I want to see it through. And so right now I'm I'm finishing a recording of six songs that's pretty much how how I think of the songs when I just naturally think of them like in the styles that I play more of a rock and roll kind of feel um, and like a bit of, a bit akin to like a lot of the rock and roll greats of like the the 70s and whatnot um, you know some like keyboard centric stuff that's like done through roads you know nice tone guitars and bass through tube amps um, good, good male harmonies going on, things like that. Um, so this one is to be released in like November. And so I'm going to do four different versions. Like this is the, the first release, but my plan is to do another, do the same six songs, but do it as like kind of akin to the, uh, um, the Northwest, like sludgy, almost like hardcore scene of like the '90s and stuff. Like, right. I mean, a little grunge, but like also a little bit more of like what was happening. The like, thrashier stuff. Yeah, that on. wasn't like being paid attention to. Yeah, like by the mainstream. Right. Um, and that'd be like the winter release. Um, then I'm gonna do another version, which I've kind of I, actually I'm finishing today the scoring of with a a buddy of mine the one that played upright bass in that first show a while back. Um, and so it'll be like the same six songs as a string ensemble and like a little, a little like horn ensemble too, like very orchestrated. Um, and then in the summer, I'm going to do a fully digital version with like processed vocals and like synthesizers and like electronic drums. And so like the same six songs, but like just changing and like kind of trying to, put one in each season yeah that's a cool concept and and well and the idea is like it's these are things that i know i can do on a relatively cheap budget sure i don't have a lot of money it's a big part of it. so move. but if i can if i can fully see this whole thing through hopefully there'll be someone out there who takes notice of it and is willing to give me some money to do a bigger budget recording because mm -hmm. like the six songs i'm using are my oldest songs like i think there's one that I wrote in 2004. Wow. 
Yeah. And so I have a whole other record of newer stuff, but I kind of want to hold on to that until I can do it in a really cool setting and have like the financial backing to do it like really well. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's such a big part of like our struggle, um, as recording artists is, um, like damn budget. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know, um, we have other ways of making money these days, um, between licensing and shows. But if you are getting something off the ground, um, even coming from a, a you know, successful background, um, like you have, it's still just like, you know, it's still your money at the beginning of it. And, uh, you got to find where that money is going to come from. And then that sets the, you know, that there is your big, biggest limitations for what you're doing. Well, and like, and it's, it's funny you say coming from a successful background, which I wholeheartedly agree with you. Like yeah. I, I had a wonderful opportunity and I mean, it's like, when I was 14, 15 years old, I had dreams of being on Sub Pop, and I was like, that's never going to happen. And then all of a sudden, I turned 31, and I am. Mm. And it was like, whoa, like childhood dreams realized, like, right. this is really cool. Mm. And had a go at it, and it was, it was amazing. It was great. But we're talking about, like, the financial side of everything. Like, this, I mean, I spent, like, so much money. Like, I didn't make anything. Like, I invested a lot. And it's not bitter about it. It was great. Sure, it sure. was it was all done on purpose. But, like, that's that's the caveat that, like, is really hard for people to understand. That, like, this isn't really a successful venture anymore. It was at one point, but still, even when it was, it was, it was for the very top percent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it took a lot of bands a year of success... Before they even saw money, mm-hmm. you know, when records were selling. I think we were very fortunate that we made enough money to keep the band going. Right. To where we hit a point where we, we could all stop fully investing in tours and things like that. Mm. And we all spent money, you know, at times, but it like, it got less and less, you know. Mm. And we were able to ask for a certain amount of money to where like, well, at least we're not paying for our gas, you know, like we're going to get a meal out of this and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, we can fix our equipment. I want to go, um, to that. This is something I like to get into with everybody. Um, where, where and when did you start playing music? I'm talking age and time in your life. Um, I was, I think I was three years old. Wow. Um, my parents started when I was three, so my brother would have been six, and my sister would have been nine. We all started um, violin, and I did violin from three to nine. And at that point, we were living in England, and I had this teacher who. Not only I'm pretty sure she didn't like kids, I think she had a chip on her shoulder about Americans, too. <laughs> and so I, I really wasn't enjoying like that. And so my mom gave me a choice. She was like, well, you can continue, or you can switch to piano. I was like, I'll take piano. <laughs> so I, I started piano when I was nine. Um, and I, I carried lessons on that all the way until I was 19. And that was great, like... Um, definitely 
shaped a lot of how I see music and yeah like that was the the foundation for everything else yeah because like from that then you know picked up the trombone when I was 11 uh the guitar when I was 13 and and tried other instruments like throughout there and stuff like that and then it was when I was uh 23 the first time I really played the bass and then, like, there's something about it. Like, I did it because I was trying to start a band, and we had three guitar players, and no one else was willing to do the bass, and I was like, I'll do it. Yeah. And... The cl- that's the classic story. Yeah, it is. Playing bass. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, everyone thinks, it's like, oh, yeah, the bass, okay, I guess I'll do that. I'll, I'll move down. I was like, no, actually, that is the most important instrument mm-hmm. in the band. It's great. Like, it, it ties the rhythm into the melody. It's the shoelaces. Uh, if, if the drums are the shoe, yeah. the, the bass is the shoelaces. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. And so, and... Well, we're both wearing shoes. I should, I should tell them. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, uh, as I, as I just kept playing... It went from just being something I was doing to someone was like, oh, wait, I understand this. Mm. And and I feel that, like, now a lot of people just see me as a bass player, which mm. is fine. I'm totally okay with that. I see you as a musician. That's funny. Well, and that's how I see myself. But, you know, in a lot of, like, the more popular settings that I've been in, it's been as a bass player. Mm. And so, which is cool. Like, you know, I love the bass. I really enjoy playing it, and like you know, I I ended up getting an upright bass like a couple of years back, and that's really cool. It's like cool to get back into like that classical string instrument type thing, and they like get to do some bow work mm-hmm. again. But you know, it's uh, um, it, it still is like I just I see myself as a musician. Yeah, you know. Um, well, yeah, you're a multi-instrumentalist musician, which is more than I can say, and more than most in our um, respective scene of, of musicians, you know. Well, I, I really do thank my parents for that. Like, they, they never forced anything on us kids, but they did. Music was the one thing where, like, you have to do this up until a certain age. Yeah. And I think it was about junior high, high school we got to make our own decisions on, on that kind of thing. And I just, I was already hooked. I was like, I'm not stopping. I grew up with a buddy like that. I mean, at least, um, my first bass player who was a tremendous, uh, bass player. Um, his name was Jeremy Bowen. Maybe he'll hear this someday. He lives in Bellevue now. Um, and he was, had that same background with as far as uh, family discipline, you know, you have to play the piano until you're, X age or whatever, yeah. and then he switched to bass in junior high and everything. But he was so grateful for that. Now I have a son who's eight, and um, people think he plays the drums because he played the drums on one of our videos. But uh, we have a drum set here that the drum set from the video. He he gets on it every now and then, wails away, but he's terrible. He has no skill. He's just having fun. He's just having fun and. The thing with me, I didn't want to, and I'm I'm just throwing this out there because I, I don't understand what's supposed to be done. I have all these friends that are putting their kids in uh, music lessons, and I think it's fantastic. I think it's, uh, it's 
pe people putting their kids in these uh, intense uh, violin lessons. Have you heard about these ones where it's like, I forget what the... It's like this Japanese... Suzuki? Suzuki. That's the violin that I, I did. Actually, I still use the Suzuki material when I teach Interesting. like beginning piano students. Interesting. And I mean, I don't... What is that material? I mean, just a brief... Synopsis. I mean, it's... Like, the whole Suzuki method is ear... It's kind of like ear training. Mm. You're mimicking what you hear. Mm. So, you know, you're like, uh, you hear, da, 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 and then you find that, mm -hmm. and you play that, and, like, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. kids but, do with the radio when they're learning guitar. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I mean, I follow other methods of teaching, but I still, I love the, the songs so well, they are really well structured. And it's like they'll learn a melody with both hands. Mm -hmm. And then they'll revisit the song and they'll put like an accompaniment that's like arpeggiated like chords mm -hmm. as they play the melody in the right hand. And it starts to show the like um, the breaking up of what each hand is doing and mm -hmm. having them work independently from each mm -hmm. other. And so it's, it's really great material. And um, I just, and also it's like, there, there's a bit of nostalgia. It's like, I kind of like hearing all these like beginning piano students, like in their first year playing all these songs that that's how I learned. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I taught guitar, um, for a, about a year and, um, just to, like college students and stuff. And I, it made me realize like how remedial my own work was <laughs> you know like you think you know so much and then you start teaching somebody something and you're like yeah i just used that yes well i mean that's the thing though it's like you know when you break music down to the fundamentals it should be simple mm -hmm. if you're trying to start with this very complex idea and believe me i've tried many times <laughs> it's really hard to get to the next levels and stuff so it's about really good technique and tone and being a master of your own instrument, but also like you're layering just a little bit by little bit, you know, and it's, when you break it down, it's like, you know, okay, there only is a handful of chords because you're in a given key signature. Uh -huh. There's only a handful of chords to work with. And then you just embellish on them. You put movable parts throughout the chords that like sound like melodies that are just walking through these, like these built around blocks, you know, so, because, you know, any, any given scale in the Western, any, any given, like, like Western scale, you only have seven tones. And so that's essentially in the basic thing, you have seven chords to work with. I heard Paul Simon talking about, um, a theory though. Um, it wasn't his own, it was somebody also, I think some music professor or whatever came out and said that, um, maybe it was a composer, he said there's actually 43 keys. It's not, it's not the 12 that we are taught. That, you know, when your voice, when a, when a, someone sings a cappella, now I'm just like that, poorly paraphrasing, but um, just to be in transparency, but uh, that when your a voice sings an a cappella and it's, you know, going through the range, that those are notes. Oh, they're, yeah. not, they're not off. No, I mean, they may be, but it's still... That's well, still that's, no and that's why I say the Western scale. Yeah, yeah. You I know, heard, yeah, you, on that. Yeah. you get into, like, Eastern school of thought, and, like, you get into the quarter tones, mm -hmm. and all that. And he's like, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. 
And that's that's a whole level that I've dabbled in. And definitely, you know, especially with Rose Windows, like we, we loved a lot of those kind of like modes. Mm. But I don't know enough to really like... Be dangerous. Yeah, to to really get into it or like feel that I I have some sort of knowledge that I can impart on one of my students or mm. something like that. And which is fine. I mean yeah. most of the instruments we play are built around the Western scales, you know, like yeah. the guitar and guitars are cool because you can you can retune them. Oh and, and you can bend them. Yeah. You know? I mean But you, you know it's funny speaking about complications and just um Skill and complication. I have a silly theory. It's just not. It's not a. It's not a important one. But that you can get so good that you revert back to where you started. Like oh, that's yeah. That's just that's just Zen Buddhism right there. Right. You know, like that's it's so true. It's like the stuff that I play now. In some ways, you could consider simpler than my first rock band when I was fifteen. You know. But at the same time, it's like, it's a totally different level. Sure. You know, it's like a... It's like the Imagine album. Yeah. It's very basic. Mm. It's very, it's like stripped down and like, just, just simple. Moves from part to part and like, it's great though. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I love that album. Yeah. Oh God. Well, I mean, it's intensely emotional. The guy had his... Well, he had his... uh, uh, at that point, he had his issues on a leash. You know what I mean? And that's um, more than you can ask of, of just about any artist, especially one of the Beatles. Um, yeah, I was, I was always against Paul. Really? Growing up. Oh, growing up, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. like, I was... I, I just, I was, a, I was a John guy, I was a George yeah. guy, and like, I was... So the Beatles were one of the first bands I ever listened to. And it was when I, I remember like really paying attention to, to music outside of like the classical stuff I'd be singing in choirs or like playing violin. And when I was a little kid, um, it was my dad had control of the radio. He was driving. And so we were constantly listening to oldie stations. I thought that was modern music. Mm-hmm. I thought that was all current. And, you know, and it was the, the Beatles and the Beach Boys were the, I mean, partly because he loved both those bands, but those are what really stuck with me and I paid attention to. And I remember, uh, I remember when my, I listened to some of my sister's music in the 80s that was modern. And, you know, it was, uh, like, I think she put on YouTube for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, What? <laughs> What what happened? What how did we get here? <laughs> this is what's going on now. <laughs> and I mean now like I'm I look back and there's there's been a lot of really good things that happened in the eighties too. Yeah, much more than we uh, respected or admitted in the early two thousands and the nineties. Which is just that's just the way it goes. It's like you know, right now... It's like I, people liking Reagan as a president. They're like, what the fuck's yeah. up with <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I look back on a lot of music I listened to in the nights, I'm like, oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> gonna, I'm not even going to donate that CD. I'm going to burn it. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, well, it's so funny. My sister told me a story last night that she was going through her, um, she was being, she was being harsh, but she's an older sister. She can do that. Uh, she was going through her crap, getting rid of stuff, and she looked at one of my earliest EPs and was like, from 10 years ago, and was like, Mm, should I? Or... <laughs> she says she hung on to it, but I wouldn't be uh, surprised at all if it ended up donated. You know, I've I've actually been like I've been trying to just clear out all of my stuff, so I'm going through all these little pieces of memorabilia that I've been holding on yeah. to, and it's like I have T-shirts from friends' bands from like the '90s and like the mm. early 2000s, and I'm like, you know. I wasn't in this band and like I still remember them and I, I have the music and I, I came to the point where I'm just like okay if it's not a tangible piece of music or just a piece of paper of like a flyer or something like that I'm not gonna hold on to it anymore you know I want I want memories that I can file or uh, I can listen to yeah or, or I can like pictures I like my pictures yeah. you know but Outside of that, I don't need little trinkets and all this stuff. It just takes up space and, like, I feel like you should just use it. Like, I'm hanging on to that painting, which it cro crosses a couple of things that we've um, talked about today. Um, that painting isn't particularly magnificent, but, but it, it is interesting. And um, it was done at a show at what is now the Highline. Okay. Um, but what was it before? What was before the Highline? It doesn't really matter. Most people. It was a weird dance club, know. right? Before yeah, the, it was a weird dance with club. The, with the, the Ferrari, the Lamborghini, Lamborghini. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the pink Lamborghini hanging yep. from like where the sign would be, yeah. and they had all these problems with it. That club, <laughs> anyway. When it turned into a music venue slash vegan restaurant, which is which was uh, not for me. Um, we played there as Thunder Buffalo with, in Aaron's group. Okay. And um, that painting was done under that concept similar, similar, not the same uh, as what you were talking about, where they had an artist there painting while the band Oh, played. yeah. I've done, I did that at Fremont Abbey. They're, yeah. They're like in the round. They always have a live painter. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And so then it was, it was like winning ticket kind of auction. And my wife was in the audience, and she just happened to have the winning ticket. So we've hung on to it. So I only have that because of that, like you said, that nostalgia. Yeah. And uh, it's grown on me. I think it's grown to, on me to the point where I don't even see it. Like, my wife did this painting over here when we met for me, and it's not skillful, but what the reason I hang on to it is because she made it for me. Yeah. Well, I still have paintings from my ex-wife. Right. And it's like, it's, there's one that I, I specifically bought, um, that I bought after we had split, and I just love it, and I have that hanging on the wall, but then I have one from when we first met in the Midwest, and for Christmas she had painted me, uh, like a kind of cityscape of Seattle. But it's like, there's no possible viewpoint where this would actually take place with, like, how the Space Needle and, like, Mount Rainier and, like, the buildings oh, right. are. Yeah. But it's still, like, 
it's, I can't get rid of it. Like, I'm just like, oh, this is just cool. It's like, it's huge. It's like the size of that one. And I have no space for it, but I still just move it from place to place. Well, you know, um, that girlfriend that Kurt Cobain had, um, when he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit and everything in Olympia, mm-hmm. she was interviewed, well, she's, she's interviewed a lot lately, but, um, anyway, she was at her house in one of the documentaries and she still has a bunch of the art that he made. Yeah. Which is fucking fantastic. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the reality is that your ex-wife is just as important to you as Kurt Cobain, you know, was to her, but yeah. not more. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a point in my life. It was a chapter that happened. And yeah, exactly. I don't want to throw away chapters. They're then there. it was a good chapter. Yeah, and it was like it had its bad moments, it had its good moments. It yeah. was like, it's just what life is. Yeah. You know, that's... I wrote songs from that period. You know, mm. like, I, I was moved in certain ways. Because of that happening... I was in situations to what has happened since then, you mm-hmm. know, like, you can't, you can't discount just where you end up in life. Yeah. You can't just think, oh, I don't like that. I mean, yeah, sometimes you have to put things away. Like, things can be very hard to deal with. And so you just, you shelve it for a time. You think about other things. And then when the time's right, you open that back up. Yeah. And hopefully you deal with it and you just bring it all back in. I mean, I, I, I tend to be more inspired by the current, but I, I definitely do have moments and lines, lyrics, that I'm like, that's from, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. That feeling, that memory that I still have, it's in that one line. Mm-hmm. The whole song could be about something else, but just, like, that sentiment definitely came out of that experience. Yeah. Upside down when the breeze hit the ceiling was a line that came out of, uh, it was in one of my songs in light, and that line came out of hanging upside down in my high school girlfriend's uh, hammock outside in the in the summertime. Yeah. A memory that I, stuck with me. Yeah. You know, and it's just... That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. That's great. Yeah, that's fun. So I'm excited that um, we get to share your music on this podcast and we're not hearing it right now, but that'll be mixed. Yeah. In. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it'll definitely be done very soon. What's, you have an interesting show coming up. Yeah. So the 26th of September, it's at Columbia city theater. And this will be the first time I'm playing with like a small orchestra. That sounds really like cool. Five piece strings, three piece horns and some auxiliary percussion. But it's like, part of this real, this realization of trying my music in different ways, this will be the first test. Mm. It could go horribly wrong, but no I, one will know. I think it's going to be cool. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited for it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this has been doing something with an orchestral setting has been a very big dream of mine since 1996. I heard Jeremy Enoch's return of the frog queen. Mm-hmm. And he uses, like, a ton of orchestral settings throughout every piece. And it um, it made sense of, like, what he's done with his, like, the, the later parts of Sanity Real Estate and, like, Fire Theft and, like, all the solo stuff since then. But, like, I heard this and was like, ah, oh, I want to do that. Mm. I want to try that out. I mean, I was playing in bands and orchestras and singing in choir and stuff. And I was like, I want to bring all that into my rock and roll. Like, mm. like and, and it, it was... It wasn't like this was like a brand new concept. 
it was just the way that he did it. I was like, oh, I, I think I could like have some fun with this too, you know? Yeah. No, it's a big feat. Yeah. I, I've done it. I understand it, but not, not live. I haven't done it live. Um, and it's daring. It's challenging. It's very daring because like, I'm, it's not like I'm just having strings with my band. Hey bro, if Metallica could do it. <laughs> but it's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to have a bass player or a guitar mm-hmm. player or even a drummer. Like, it'll be auxiliary percussion. So there's not going to be, like, just steady beats and things like that to follow. Like, it's... I want it to be... It's all the same notes, but it's just through different avenues and different pathways. And so I think it's going to be really cool. It sounds good in my mind. And Yeah, me too. We'll just see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, la- one last thing. So we didn't finish this. So do you, so the reason I didn't I'm not pushing my son to oh, be yeah. disciplined about an instrument is because I my association with music was like it was the thing that saved me, and when I chose it, you know I chose it for the nurturing that I needed in my own private world internally, and so when I chose it, I chose it, it was mine. Yeah, like I did not. I was not prodded. I was not pushed. I found. I discovered. And I became I didn't so that's like such a strong part of me that I don't want to I don't want him to be um a drummer or a frontman or a a musician of any kind at 26 struggling you know uh, as it goes and say damn it dad I did this because you told me to yeah I don't think you have to worry about that I think that you would have to worry about that if you were forcing him into like an avenue, like you were going to play piano and you're going to study well, this classical etudes <laughs> and you're going to understand the theory behind Bach by the time you're mm-hmm. 11 and like, or it's like, Oh, you want to be a singer? Well, you're going to do Italian arias for the next two years. Like mm-hmm. that's pushing it, but giving him the avenue of being like, Hey, how about you try music lessons for a month and see what you think? You know, like if it if it's something you really like, then you can continue on that way. If not, you know, maybe maybe you try out like band when you get to that age. Well, what do you think would be better at this point? People ask. It's funny. Parents ask me this all the time because I interact with a lot of parents and they know a musician. They ask, you know, what it what instrument should they start on? Yeah. Well, I'm asking you that question. Piano. Right now. Piano. Yeah, give them that range. Yep. And that like, association. If, I mean, I, I know that I started on violin, but I don't really consider myself starting that way. I, I consider piano as my real first instrument. And the knowledge that I got from that just made every other instrument I picked up so easy. Like, I mean, not not like easy, easy, but just I feel like I had a, a leg up when I went to guitar, when I went to trombone. Like I picked up a saxophone once and I was able to like understand it or like play trumpet and like, you know, so even, I mean, even, even like percussion stuff, like the piano, like you are mm-hmm. doing percussive kind of things with it. So it, and it's, but really what it is, is it's that, that linear vision of music, seeing it that way, seeing this, like this, like process of lower and higher. And it's just moving along this one line like how you see that, it's 
say you end up being a guitar player. But because you started with that basis and that's how you see it, you're going to see things that like people that just start on a guitar will never see it that way. Like the movement you can do between chords and like how you, yeah. you, you do scale stuff. It's like really cool. Yeah, a lot of people who play piano don't understand um, the way that people play guitar are thinking, unless they play both. But it's, mm -hmm. it's common that it's hard for them, the two, to associate yeah. their methods. And like so, when, but like so when I teach piano, I will, I will occasionally use a guitar mm. to show something. But when I teach guitar... I am constantly giving Using. reference to the piano. I'm like, okay, look at yeah. this. Look at, visually, just look at what I'm doing. Mm. See how I move there? Because it's really easy to to show the difference between, like, um, whole tone and semitone and things like that. And also see, see how chords get inverted, mm -hmm. which is, like, a little bit harder on a guitar, mm -hmm. you know, but... I feel like mixing the two together, it's like, it gives them a better understanding of the hows and whys. Mm. You sound like a fantastic teacher. Yeah, you should bring me seven. <laughs> I, mean, I think I am. I mean, it's it's real close. It's just over on Delridge. Oh, that's the right. That's where you're the, saying you're... Yeah, yeah, music. Oh, my God. Oh, well, okay. You got me. I'm in. Yeah. It's, yeah, I'll bring him. This, cool. We'll start in September. Awesome. We're, we're in September now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it's been a great, it's been great talking yeah, to everybody. Yeah, totally. So I'm putting up a link to Blind Blind Tiger, the record label that Hotel Vignette is on, um, to their Bandcamp account in the music description section of this podcast so you can find your way to Nils' music and go buy it. Go support and make music profitable again so you can hear more from these talented musicians. For pics of our guests, look up BD and the Sheiks on Instagram. Check us out on Twitter at right behind us spelled with a w thanks for listening remember to click subscribe on your podcast app and we'll have more coming soon on to the next episode